And while he's sharing with you, I, I want you to be praying because I would like to really do something special this morning and really bless their ministry sacrificially with a sacrificial gift of our worship to the Lord and our thanksgiving to the Lord. Come on, Dr. Phillips. Finally got that tie on this morning. <laughs> I'll have it off tonight. I tell you, coming to this uh, church and to this fellowship is like coming to an oasis. When I was a pastor, I used to explain to the staff and to the church that we have guests in to minister, but we also have guests in that we may minister to them. And we tried to understand that much of our ministry was to those who came to minister to us. And you have ministered to us. Your joy, your enthusiasm, your potential, your uh, celebration, uh, your determination to honor God and to make a difference in a lost world just lifts us up. We go to so many churches and so many situations that are heavy. And at our stage in life, we're called on to go into situations where there's trouble and where there's division and there's strife and where there's all kind of chaos. And that's part of our ministries to help bring healing and restoration to those situations. But that drains us. So when we come to you, we're refreshed and lifted up. And we thank God for your ministry to us. And uh, it's going to be very difficult for us not to just get into the habit of coming on a regular basis. We're, going to, we're just going to be addicted to this good treatment. Praise God. I want my wife, Lovey, to come and share with you about her ministry to children. And then I'll come and talk just a little about the Bible translation and the other uh, facets of our ministry. God has given us a very special work to do, and we've embraced that work with joy. And uh, Lovey has had such a wonderful part in seeing that all this happened. We went to Calcutta 20 years ago, and we saw the children eating out of the garbage, their bloated bellies, their little bodies covered with sores. We saw the desperation, and we also saw the potential and the power of the gospel. And we stood amidst about 600 children and held each other by the hand and wept and said, we have to do something about this. At that point, our vision was for about 15 children. We thought if we could just go home and persuade 15 people to help us with 15 or 20 of these children, that would be wonderful. That's all we could see. And over the years, God has given us the privilege of ministering to now near a thousand children. And love has kept all that on track. And I want her to tell you just what's in her heart and maybe give you an opportunity. I'm going to ask Pastor to divide the offering today between her ministry and mine. It means two separate checks because we have two separate bank accounts. She manages hers a lot better than I manage mine. And so I've, I've said when Mama Phillips does it, it's done right. Lovey? Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't usually get that uh, good of treatment. <laughs> Um, Savelle and Pastor asked me if I would share just a little bit, which is also 
unusual. I usually let him do most of the talking, and he usually doesn't mind doing most of the talking. So, But I want to say, first of all, that you look better from up here than you do even over there. You're just a terrific-looking group. And I, I agree with Savelle. It's just like coming to a refreshing oasis to come here and enjoy your fellowship and let me say to those of you who maybe uh, have not traveled around much you probably don't know what you have and you probably don't appreciate it quite as much as you ought to because the beautiful fellowship that you share here and the beautiful fellowship of the pastors together you don't find that a lot of places a lot of times there's um, jealousies and and uh, protecting your little territory and so you're blessed to have pastors that reach out to each other and share fellowship and enjoy each other's um, fellowship together and I can feel it as it spills over to you and I see the sweet spirit that you have and um, be grateful for it thank the Lord for it because it is something to be thankful for. Uh, as Seville said, we went to India almost, well, I guess it has been 20 years ago now when the Lord first dealt with us about the children. And it was one of those things that we never intended to become involved in, as he said. It just kind of evolved. It just kind of happened. But uh, through the years, uh, I have worked, if I do say so myself, very hard at this, and I spend a lot of hours anywhere from 50 up in the office every week. When I'm not on the road with him, I'm in that office early in the morning and usually until late at night, and sometimes you get to wondering, is it really worth it? Uh, sitting here in front of this computer, stuffing these envelopes, sending these letters out, is it really paying off? And especially when you do it as a labor of love a lot of the time, very seldom more than that. And you just wonder, Lord, um, am I making a difference? And about two and a half years ago, I think Savelle sensed that it was time I'd better go back. <laughs> I think he, I, not that I had not been back to the mission field, I had been, uh, to a number of places, but I had not been back to Calcutta, the place that the the vision first actually started in our hearts, even though he had been back several times. And I almost, I tried to back out because uh, the funds had not come in for me to make the trip, and I was determined I was not going to put it on a credit card and come home. It's so hard to pay it off when you do that. So... He said, no, I really feel you should go. And he went ahead and made my reservations and ordered my ticket. And right at the last minute, the Lord provided through a family that we didn't even know, but had received our newsletters for several years. They had never given uh, any sizable sum. But they just wrote and said, God spoke to our hearts that you're supposed to go on this trip and sent a $2,000 offering, which paid for my ticket. So I knew God really intended for me to go on that trip. And when I got there, I realized why. The first Sunday we were in the congregation, Savelle was speaking to the English-speaking people. 
they have seven congregations that meet on seven levels of this building, and we were on the seventh floor, and there were about probably 1,800, 2,000 people in the English service because they have seven languages that the services take place in. And the young man that was directing the service was just the sharpest, sharpest guy and was doing such a fantastic job with the praise and worship. And Hulda leaned over to Seville and she said, since Mark died, he does most of the preaching. I speak occasionally to the English-speaking congregation, but he does most of the preaching and it just does a great job for me. And in a few minutes, she leaned over to him and she said, oh, by the way, he came up through the child care program. That night, the young man leading the service was, again, doing a great job, and she leaned over to Sibel, and she said, this young man is our youth pastor of the English-speaking congregation and does a, a great job for us. And you guessed it, in a few minutes, she leaned over and said, oh, by the way, he came up through the child care program. The next morning, we went to the school about 30 miles from the Bangladesh border where our ministry sponsors every child in the school. And we were able to see the children on the grounds and they welcomed us. And, and we just had such a beautiful day with them and the teachers and went through the school day with them and saw exactly how they're taught uh, the scripture as well as being taught uh, get, receiving some of the best education that is available in India. And the next day we went back and went visited the hospital. And when we met the assistant administrator of the hospital, yes, he came up through the child care program. And then we went into where the nurses are trained. And on the wall there's all of these plaques where these nurses had received honors from the government as being the top in the nation for several years in a row. As we walked out the door, I turned to Hulda and I said, okay, how many of the nurses, what percentage of the nurses that come through the training program come up through the child care program? And she said, at least half or more come through the child care program. And then we walked into the administrative office. Now, this mission has grown tremendously in the 20 years since we first started supporting them. At that time, they had one school. They had 600 children in the school. Then they had uh, probably 1,800 that they fed in the mornings. Now they have over 33 schools scattered all over their area. They have that many churches that they have pastors, and many of the pastors came through the child care program. But as we stood there and we realized that they have 1,500 employees, including their nurses, the doctors, the teachers, the principals of the school, the pastors, they have over 1,500 employees. And she introduced us to this very sharp young man. She said he takes care of all of the funds that come in for the mission, he takes care of paying everybody. He takes care of all the finances. And as we walked out the door, she turned around and said, oh, yes, he came up through the child care program. Believe me, I left there feeling like I could go home and work a 100-hour week <laughs> because it does pay off. Because when I realized that here are these kids that many of them would have even died on the streets, had somebody not decided they cared enough to give 
$21 a month to provide an education and to provide food for these kids, but not just that. We don't even work with any groups that are not teaching those kids about God and about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't even work with them if, if they shortchange that area of the gospel. Uh, they have to teach the full gospel that there is power in being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we, when you realize the change that you've made in their lives, but then I looked at those and their leaders, they're people that are making changes in thousands of people's lives by telling them the good news that was told to them in the beginning as children. And so I feel that what we're doing with the children doesn't just change temporarily. It changes for eternity. And it does not just change that child, but it's changing hundreds of others and is changing their nation as they touch lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just thank him for the privilege of having a little tiny part in it. There's a little magazine over there that if you'd like to know a little more about it, uh, just please come over to the table afterwards and pick it up, and it'll give you a little more information. Inside the magazine also is a magazine concerning Bible translation that Savelle will be telling you more about. The children that we have with us, uh, their pictures with us, I should say, today, the pictures are not really super good because you, you wouldn't believe how hard it is in some of these areas to get that type of thing done. But these are children that are some of the neediest in the whole world, and they are uh, primarily Buddhist background. And it's in an area that we've not had a school before, but it's one of the men that has worked with us for many years. In fact, his grandfather is the one that wrote, uh, that translated the Tibetan Bible and the one that the book that we had here, I think that some of you received, God Spoke Tibetan. Uh, so this grandson has started, opened a new school in addition to his Bible translation work. And so we are getting sponsors for his children at this time. So if you want to look at those, uh, you're welcome to do so. Amen. Let's give Lovey and the Lord a big hand. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Be sure and stop and visit with her and talk with her and... This is a small bite that you can take hold of. It's something meaningful you can get involved in. Pastor asked us to just take a few minutes, and I realize that we're going to take a little longer than maybe he intended. But uh, just take it off of my preaching time, Pastor. Because what, what I want to share with you really has to do with the message I'm going to bring later. And, uh, you know, our ministry of Bible translation has in enormous needs and projects and every time I turn around there's another crisis or another uh, challenge that we face last night I shared the need of the young man who has hepatitis who's going back to Cuba believing God to heal him and give him his strength back I ask you to pray for one of our young couples in India who are caught up in this earthquake 
This morning I sat in front of the television and watched the sad and disturbing news from Russia and realized that one of our young couples is in Russia on their way to the above the Arctic Circle where they will live with an Eskimo tribe for 25 years to write their language and give them the scripture. And my heart went out to Eric and Jan this morning because they're caught up in this confusion. And I believe that God is a God of the nations and, and he's able. So here in, in just a span of a few hours, I've, I've expressed to you my concern for three of our couples. I tell you, translating the word of God is spiritual warfare. And when you talk about giving people the word of God in their own language for the first time, and you begin to aggressively move in that direction, all hell breaks loose. And uh, we, we, we need a financial miracle. But more than that, we need a breakthrough in the spiritual realm that God will give victory today. Amen. Now, just indulge me for a minute because um, I, I want to come back to what I'm going to share with you in the next just three or four minutes. I want to come back to it at the close of my message today. So just kind of listen up and, and tuck it away and say, I wonder how that's going to fit with what he's going to preach today. But when I was a pastor in California, I had the privilege of ministering to two retired missionaries from China. They were approaching and, and then passed their 80s. Both of their mates had died in China. We had a big wedding at our church for two near 80-year-old retired missionaries. It was a tremendous time. We gave them the wedding of the year. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And then I had two other uh, people who had been born in China, uh, lived there all their adult life uh, as members of my congregation. They were the children of missionaries. So it was through these four people and then other visiting missionaries that God gave me First of all, an understanding that there are 52, maybe 56 language groups in China who do not speak Chinese. They do not speak Mandarin or Cantonese. They have distinct languages, separate languages. They have their own culture. And these minority language groups, by and large, have not had the scriptures in their own language. You can send a trainload of Bibles to China and still not get uh, uh, the Word of God to these uh, ethnic language groups. One of these groups has 60 million people in it, and they are Muslims. We normally think of Chinese as being Buddhist, but these are, are Muslims. And so I, I was really stirred in my spirit 25, 30 years ago. And over the years, I've cried and prayed and sought God and tried desperately to to get a handle on a way to minister to these minority ethnic groups, because that's who we're called to, is the bypassed and forgotten. We're not called to duplicate what somebody else is doing or compete with what somebody else is doing. Our call is front line to reach people who've never had a dog's chance. And so every effort I made was, was defeated, and seemingly. And um, uh, a few years ago, I was on a Pan Am flight out of uh, New Delhi, one of the first flights that came directly from New Delhi to Hong Kong, and we flew across western China, across the mountains, a beautiful crystal clear day like today, and I was, had a window seat, 
and I could see the villages and the towns. And I sat up there at 37,000 feet and prayed with agony of soul, God, help me to help those people. I know you have people down there. I know you have your servants down there. I know those people don't have the word of God in their language. They can't read a Chinese Bible, even if we got one to them. So help me. And as I said, effort after effort came to nothing. And then three years ago, I was in uh, Hong Kong. And after a tremendous battle, spiritual battle, that I don't have time to talk to you about, we finally got to Hong Kong and, and was able to make our way across the border into mainland China. That's a whole big story in itself that I'll just leave out. And the, the missionary who escorted us said, would you like to uh, uh, go meet with a Bible translation team? And to my utter astonishment, this man took me to a secret hideaway where three people were hidden from the secret police, writing a Bible for one of those tribes that I had prayed over so many years. One of those tribes that my elderly friends had talked about and asked me to pray with them about and hid out in a loft apartment. It was three people. One of them was a man named Lipo John. He was from the Lipo tribe. He's an elderly man. He told me that the missionaries came to the Lipo people across the mountains out of Burma on the backside of China in 1906 and thousands of Lipos were saved. And in 1911 or 12, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit among the Lipo people before Azusa Street or before the outpouring in Kansas City. There was an outpouring of the Pentecostal power upon these people before there was here in America. And Lipo John told me that all these years, when the missionaries had to leave, they were trying to write a Bible for us. But uh, when they were driven out, they left their manuscripts with us and the elder who was in charge of these precious manuscripts. The missionaries had said, the Bible is not finished, but someday somebody will come back and God will send someone. We're old. We'll never come back because we'll die before this war is over. But you... Save these manuscripts because they'll be of immense value to whoever comes to help write a Bible for you. And he said, all these years have gone by since 1906. My people have prayed for a Bible. Now, he said, I, I was a child in those days. Now I'm old and there's still no Bible. And God put it in my heart to go find somebody that would write a Bible for our people. And he said, I walked. I found uh, Robert Morris who was a retired Bible translator who had already written five New Testaments in a lifetime, which is an unheard of feat. This man speaks 17 languages, and he was the second person in that room, an old man with leukemia, dying and yet mustering a little strength to work for an hour at a time, two hours at a time. He would take a nap, rest a bit, write a little more, take another nap. And I was so moved by what I was seeing that an old Lipo man had gone to find a gifted linguist who is world-renowned and world-respected and pled with him to write a Bible in our language before you die. And this man was mustering the last strength he had to try to finish a New Testament. The third person in that room was a young lady named Lisa. She at that time was 22 years old. She spoke excellent English. She went in and out of the hiding place and got groceries and she was the language helper and she interpreted for me and she was communicating with me as a translator and 
at the end of two hours, I was in tears because I was seeing what I'd prayed for for so many years and had never been able to do. And finally, I said, as I was leaving, I said, you folk are doing what I've prayed for the privilege of doing. And somehow I've never been able to do it. And here I come and find you with no outside help doing what I'd prayed to do. So how can I help you? What can I do to encourage you? And Robert Marsh leaned across the table and shook a feeble, bony finger at me and said, take her, pointed at Lisa, take her out of here now and get her trained. Because I, it'll take 15 more years to finish this New Testament. I will never live to finish it. She is called. She is brilliant. She is anointed. She is God's choice to receive the mantle of this project. And I want her to have formal academic training so she can do a superior job of finishing this New Testament. It'll take her 15 years, but she must have the training. And I agreed to bring Lisa out. I thought I'd have her out in six weeks. And then the Tiananmen Square thing happened and she was labeled as a dissident. She was arrested, interrogated, threatened, told that she would die in China. She would never have a chance. This girl's only been saved uh, since she was 18 years old. Her mother's a Buddhist. Her father's a communist. And she's the first member of their family to ever be saved. And yet she's putting her life on the line to help with this Bible translation. And now I'm trying to get her out to bring her to America. And that just complicates her life. And I thought I could bring her out in six weeks, three months. It was last March that we welcomed her after a supernatural intervention. One week she was told, you'll die here. My secretary, Peggy, said, well, Pastor, I guess that means after all these years you've tried so hard, it means that we've, we've been defeated and, and she's not going to get out. And we'll just have to turn to do something else. And I said, Peggy, you've been with me all these years and you don't know that we don't give up. We don't take a no from a communist government as final. God has the final word about this. And the God we serve is going to intervene. She said, what are you going to do? I said, we're going to start over. And we're going to lean on that government again. And God has the power to set her free. And suddenly, after all of that discouragement, she is out. I mean, she'd never been to Hong Kong. She's, I got word, Lisa is in Hong Kong. And we had a ticket there waiting for her. In a few days, we welcomed her to Dallas, and she arrived on Tuesday. On And Robert Morris kept saying, if I know she's in America getting her training, I can, um, can die in peace, he said. She arrived Tuesday. Friday, I enrolled her in college. It turns out the president of the college had been a missionary to China for six years. When I brought her into the office, he broke down and wept and said, Girl, you're an answer to our prayers. This entire student body has prayed that God would send us a student from mainland China. And you walk through my door, you are an answer to prayer. Come on in. I'll help you. And they enrolled her. And oh, it was a marvelous thing. He just held her in his arms and wept as he welcomed her to the college. That was uh, Friday, Saturday morning. She arrived Tuesday, Friday, enrolled her. Saturday morning, Lovey and one of her friends named Judy Mint wanted to go to a charismatic Jewish celebration in a synagogue in Dallas. I never heard of such a thing. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't go, so Judy and Lovey's going to go just out of curiosity. 
And Lisa was all eyes and new in America. She wanted to go along. And so these three women go off down to this synagogue and I go to take care of business. And I agreed to pick them up at 1230. And I got to the parking lot of the synagogue and I saw Levy come walking rather briskly across the parking lot alone. And she slipped into the car with me and she said, after you left the house this morning, we got word from China that Robert Morris is with the Lord. And I didn't tell Lisa because I felt like you ought to be the one to tell her. So uh, I made my way inside the synagogue, seven or eight hundred people milling around in there. The service was over. They were having fellowship just like you. And I found her and pulled her off into the corner where I could talk to her. And I said, Lisa, as painful as it is for me, I must tell you that your beloved Robert Morris is in heaven. And when I did, she screamed. She doubled up in pain. She said, I loved him more than my own father. I'll never see him again on this earth. And she's just in agony, bent over, tears pouring, the most contorted face I've ever seen on a beautiful young lady. It was horrible. My heart went out to her. And I motioned to the people around, strangers. I said, I've just had to tell her that her spiritual mentor has died in China. And uh, she's far from home, and she's new in the country. Come and help me pray for her. And about 30 of these celebrating Jewish charismatics came over, and 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 they really sensed that, you know, there's agony here. And they began to pray, and some of them began to put their arms around her and minister to her beautifully. And the Spirit of God settled down over that scene of grief. And I heard Judy Mint, love his friend, who was standing behind me, but in earshot, Judy said, My God, it is awesome. I have heard of the passing of the mantle all of my life, but I have never seen it. It is awesome. The mantle of God is falling upon this girl. And Judy knew nothing about the conversation with Robert Morris. And she said, I have never seen the mantle pass from one generation to another before. And everybody there recognized it and started praising God. And Lisa straightened up and raised her hand and through her tears, she said, God, I accept that mantle and I will finish that New Testament. Praise God. It'll take us about three years. Go ahead, give the Lord a hand. Praise God. It'll take her about three years to finish her degrees, go to the university, get her degree in linguistics, and back to China she goes to finish a New Testament. It'll take her 15 years to finish that New Testament. That means I'll be somewhere about 85 or 87 when it's finished. I fully intend to be there to dedicate it. Praise God. Praise God. And I want you to support Evangel Bible Translators, not because we have needs, we have enough needs that if I told you, we'd all be crying. Uh, but I don't want you to support us because we have needs and we fight battles. I want us, you to support us because God has called us to do something special. Praise God. And He's anointed us to do it. And by the grace of God, we're going to do it. And that's just one of 52 language groups in China alone. Let's give God a great hand. I'll be back to finish that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God.
How important is the Word of God to you? My, my Lord, don't we take this so for granted? Fifteen years to complete that New Testament and so that those people could read one verse of the Scriptures in their own language. Folks, that's, that's uh, putting the sacrifice on the altar and defending it with your life, isn't it? Praise the Lord. We, uh, we are so blessed to have the, the Word of the Lord when others do not. But we can help this morning make it possible for others to have the word of the Lord. Now, I was just I was just thinking I I, um, I was looking out and I know by the chairs that there's over 600 people in here. And I was thinking if just I have a fifty dollar bill in my wallet. I don't know how it got in there. <laughs> but I was thinking if just one hundred of us could give fifty dollars, that was that would be a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars. If, if 100 of us could just give $50, that would be $5,000. And I, I know that 100 of us could at least do that. I mean, there's 600 people here. Well, I don't want to limit what you might give. I'm just saying, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's do something. And some of you maybe can give $500 or $5,000 yourself. You have, you have the ability to do that. But I, I just I want the ushers to come. And I want you to really pray about putting the word of God. I know Dr. Phillips. I want to tell you this. There are not. I don't know if there are any other Bible translators who have a commission to make sure that what they are giving the people is the full gospel. They are one of the few, maybe only, I don't know, spirit filled Holy Spirit filled gifts of the spirit believers in the in the, among the nations that are translating the word of God. So I know this ministry. I know where the money goes. That's why they're here. I have full confidence how this will be used today. So, Father, I pray this morning that you'll bless this offering mightily and God that we will do something in worship, in our giving today, that will resound throughout the nations of the earth, Lord, bringing the Word of God to people who have never had it before. Lord, we thank you. Bless this. Bless Seville and Lovey. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. I've already preached part of my sermon, so I am aware of the time that's been taken. There's one word about our son Phil's uh, newest book, Helping Your Children Walk with God. I just want to read uh, from the back of, of the book that kind of gives a sum summary of what's uh, in the book. Uh, it says there are practical, hundreds of practical ideas here that will help you pray for your children and understand their spiritual needs, to pass on spiritual values, to strengthen your children's faith, and to teach your children about the Bible, to build family togetherness and a peaceful home, 
to provide opportunities for spiritual growth at home and at church, to set healthy boundaries with loving discipline and training, protect your children from the evils that ensnare their and ensure their uh, spiritual well-being, and so on. If you want a copy of this book uh, over at the table, I think this is the only copy we have, but what we're going to do, if you'll put your name down and just pay for the book, our office will mail it to you immediately at the same price if we had them here. Pastor Steve has given me, a, as he says, an awesome assignment. He, he and some of the staff heard me speak at Dr. Cottle's uh, faculty uh, gathering uh, a year or so ago. And I spoke uh, from Romans chapter 1, verse 14, 15, and 16. And Pastor Steve has several times asked me if I could feel free to share that message with you as a congregation. And I do that with trembling because to, to redo what has been done is, a, is, a, is not an easy thing. But I have really prayed about this and I really do feel a green light from God to proceed with it. And I'm praying that God will make it fresh manna to me and to you. And I pray that there will be the same heavy anointing that there was in that meeting when Pastor first heard me uh, speak from this passage of Scripture. So let me read from Romans Chapter 1, verse 14, 15, and 16. And of course, this is from Paul's pen. And it's Paul's own uh, uh, statement concerning himself. When he said, I'm a debtor, both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel uh, to you who are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Greek, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Uh, does anybody have an amplified New Testament that you're reading from right here? Could I have it? Could I have your amplified New Testament real quick? Who has it? All right. All right. Thank you. Uh, I just want to read you the Amplified uh, Version. This is kind of the fun uh, version of the Bible to read. Uh, and let me just uh, quickly turn to it. The same passage of Scripture from the Amplified says, Both to the Greek and to the barbarians, to the cultured and the uncultured, both to the wise and the foolish, I have an obligation to discharge, a duty to perform, and a debt to pay. Now let's say it again. I have an obligation to discharge, a duty to perform, and a debt to pay. Most of us... Uh, you want to come and get... Oh, he's gone. That's all right. You'll just have to take it by faith that I'm preaching from the Word. Uh, uh, most, most preachers, um, I included, read a passage of Scripture and then we preach from it. That's a term we use. And the fact is, most of us 
the longer we preach, the further we get from what we started out. And sometimes it doesn't resemble anything that we started out with at all. But what I want to do is park this passage of Scripture. And I want to just leave it parked. And I'm going to back away from it as far as I'll ever get and work my way back to it. And I'll be back there in about 15 minutes. 20 at the most. Trust me. Um, and in order for you to appreciate what's in my heart and my spirit, I have to tell you a little about myself. And I'm not a great one to try to tell a life story or anything like that, but it's absolutely important for me to, to rehearse a bit of my personal history in order for you to get some glimpse into why the fire burns in my bones and why the passion is so consistent in my life and why the passion to reach the world is such a driving force in my life. I was born in northwest Florida, not too far from Pensacola, to a, a very poor family. The redeeming part of that is that we didn't know we were poor because everybody else lived exactly like we did. My earliest childhood memory is of us living in a small house, two rooms, that would be called a shack. No indoor plumbing, no electricity, no paint, no carpet, no air conditioning. Very, very austere. I remember... And this must be one of my earliest childhood memories. My father coming home from work after dark, whistling as he came up a dirt road. He had walked from five to ten miles each way to earn 50 cents for a day's work. And many years later, when my mother died... And we were going through all of our papers. I found some bills from a furniture store where they had bought three wooden chairs for $18. And they had paid 50 cents a month. And that was their furnishings for the little shack that we lived in. And in this pile of papers was a letter from the manager of the furniture store that said, we know it's difficult times and it's not always easy to pay 50 cents in a month, but do the best you can and we'll be patient with you. And then finally I found the bill where it was marked paid in full. And that was a paper trail of a long struggle for a young couple who had nothing. We uh, had no transportation so we did not have the privilege of going to church very often. When somebody would come and give us a ride, occasionally we would get to go. The churches were small and struggling, mostly women and children. 
crude little buildings, 30, 40 people, no paid clergy, no conveniences. But those little tiny churches would have what they call fellowship meetings, kind of like you bring your people together for your times of fellowship and celebration, except theirs was on a much smaller scale. And these fellowship meetings would be conducted on the Sunday that is called the fifth Sunday. Now, young people need a little orientation here because that term is not used. But there's a phenomenon on the calendar that every third month, there's five Sundays in that month. And so when that fifth Sunday came, all the churches discontinued their announced service and met at an appointed place where these poor, struggling people who were better known as white trash met to worship God and to fellowship with each other. These meetings rotated from one of the little tiny churches to another. And this one Sunday, the fellowship meeting was held at Magayan's Chapel on the banks of the Escambia River in Covington County, Alabama. The, um, the preaching was loud and awful. A lot of hellfire. A lot, a lot of preaching to the women about how they ought to dress. And a lot of fear. God's going to get you. You're going to hell and God's probably glad of it. And there was no music except an old upright piano. And it had never been tuned. And it was at this noon hour that my mother, along with the other ladies, was spreading out the food they had brought that would be shared in common. When I found myself as a little boy playing in the church, exploring, seeing what I could find and get into while mother was outside. On top of that old piano was a picture, a black and white photograph of a dignified old man who had on a black suit and a vest and a gold chain across that vest. And somehow I was attracted to this photograph to the point that I went out in the yard, found my mother, pulled at her dress tail. Now, I'm just a little guy. And I persuaded her to come back in the building and I asked her, who is that man? And she said, that's your uncle Sherman McGraw. Now, I knew I did not have an uncle named Sherman McGraw. But being a good southern boy and knowing the culture, I knew that that was my mother's way of saying he's somebody very special. And when you talk about him, you call him uncle because that's a sign of respect. And I said, but I want to know who he is. And she said, it's your Uncle Sherman McGraw. I said, but who is Uncle Sherman McGraw? And she said, that's the man that brought the gospel to this community. When your granddaddy 
And all five of his children got saved. And I said, but what I want to know is why are his shoes untied? Because in the photograph, I could see these high top lace shoes that were untied. And I wanted to know what a dignified looking man with a, with a suit on would do with his, his shoes untied. And she said, well, he was a very proud man, very dignified man. He walked over 45 miles and his feet would swell and bleed. And he would sit down beside the road and try to put his swollen feet back into his shoes before he arrived at the little church where he would conduct a service. Many years went by that I would not remember that at all until I had a family reunion. And there was over a hundred of us cousins and most of us were redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit, five or six of us preachers, missionaries, doctors, educators, a scallywag and a bum or two, but you can't win them all. Uh, uh, but by and large, here was the second and third and fourth generation. After my granddaddy, who was a young pioneer farmer, had walked down the aisle under what is known in the south as a brush arbor, which is an improvised tent-like structure where the cover is made with the limbs of trees and the dirt. You know, they used to put some sawdust down the trail. And Uncle Sherman McGraw, who had, my mother said, walked 45 miles after that family reunion. And I became intrigued with this. I took my air-conditioned car and drove the route. And it was over 60 miles. Later, I was to learn that he had to swim a river. And it began to dawn on me that somebody paid a tremendous price to set the stage for me to be redeemed. I understood anew and afresh that salvation is free, but it's never cheap. Somebody pays a price. Somebody pays a price to open the door of salvation to sinners. That has never changed and never will. And, and to give you a little more insight and to give you a little, maybe greater appreciation of why I'm overflowing with gratitude this morning is that my granddaddy, the young farmer who came down that aisle in 1906, my mother was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1906. Before people knew you spoke in tongues, then you lost your English. So this whole spirit-filled life is in my genes. But this young farmer who led his little brood down the aisle to be saved when the man who walked until his feet bled. When I remembered what he told me about his own history. He was born to a pioneer family who had come to Florida when Florida was not a state 
and carved out a homestead on the banks of the Yellow River in North Florida, built a log cabin. And after the Civil War, and the South had lost, and there was anarchy everywhere, there was no law and order for over 20 years, roving bands of thieves and thugs called carpetbaggers. Some were Union soldiers, some were Confederate soldiers, some were draft dodgers, some were just hooligans, but they were generally called carpetbaggers. Roamed the South, a law unto themselves, pilfering and pillaging and commandeering whatever they wanted for their own convenience. A band of these rogues came to that log cabin where a young pioneer who was my great-grandfather, had built a log cabin. And they demanded the cow and the chickens. And when my great-grandfather resisted, they shot him in cold blood. And he died face down with his blood seeping into the Florida sand, left a young wife, a widow, and three little boys, there was no welfare system, no government assistance, very few neighbors, and they were equally destitute. But somehow my great-grandmother eked out a living and kept her little family together until the boys were in young adulthood. And then the Mormons came, a whole band of Mormons. And they said they were on their way to Arizona where they could practice polygamy to their heart's content, where they could have their own kingdom. They'd be beyond the rule of the law. And they were recruiting people to go with them. And one of those three little boys, who was now a young adult, followed the Mormons to Arizona. And there's a valley east of Tucson that is filled with my great-grandfather's offspring who carry his name. Love and I stopped to visit them once. They're nice people. They're just lost. The other grandson, the other one of those three little boys, became a drunkard. And in my lifetime, he died in a, in a shack, sleeping on a straw bed in the floor, so drunk, so deranged by alcohol, until before he died, maggots were eating in his body, open sores. And he died with no one attending him except a common-law wife. And when he died, the preacher helped build a homemade coffin. And the preacher and his wife took this pitiful body to a public cemetery and said a few words over him and buried him. And nobody attended his funeral. The third of those three little boys, the younger of the three, was my granddaddy, who came down an aisle 
when a man who walked 45 plus miles to his feet bled to preach the gospel. And my mother fathered, followed her father and her mother to that altar and was gloriously saved. And this morning, I'm standing here in this pulpit, redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit, with over 45 years of ministry behind me and thousands of people following me into heaven. Praise God. I'm not a Mormon this morning. I'm not a drunk. I'm saved by the grace of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and coming to the end of a life that has been fruitful and blessed beyond measure. My son Phil, who wrote this book, is fourth generation. And his little boy was born a few weeks ago. I took little Bailey in my arms and notified to him that he was going to heaven, whether he liked it or not. <laughs> I want to tell you, God intercepted our family at that altar in 1906. And I am riding the crest of a wave of redemptive grace. Hallelujah. And I want to tell you that wasn't any accident. And I want to tell you that I am eternally grateful to an old man who would walk 45 miles to reach a community of white pagans who had no religious heritage and preach Jesus to them and preach the full gospel. Now, every one of you have your own version of that story. But some of you say, but I don't because I'm first generation Christian. Maybe you were a a drug addict. Maybe you were just a mixed up kid. Maybe you were just kind of wandering around. And you don't have any kind of heritage like that to talk about. But think what God did for you. When God intercepted you. And brought you into the family of God. And you as a first generation Christian. Are now setting the stage for your grandchildren. To be mighty men and women of God. Hallelujah. I can just see it now. The Lord tarries. A future Billy Graham. Who isn't even born yet. Standing up before millions. And telling his story. Saying, you know, my grandmama. My granddaddy. Went to a funny kind of church. In Spokane, Washington. Got mixed up with a little preacher. I think his name was Steve. And he did have his shoes laced. But that's about all I can say about it. And he really used that word awesome. It was a strange kind of church. But my grandmother got saved. And then she met a fellow that used to be quite a turkey until he got saved. And they got married in that church. And my mama grew up loving God. And now here I am, a debtor. Because the gospel reached my forefathers. I'm increasingly intrigued by the generational aspects of salvation. 
Praise God. Praise God. Nobody can be saved for their children. But I want to tell you, you can set the stage for future generations to know God. As I stand here this morning, I not only review my family history, but I look back across history and I see the pilgrims who paid a tremendous price to come to America that we might have religious freedom. I have a debt. I have an obligation. I go be beyond the pilgrims and think of the monks and the priests and people like the Huguenots who kept the candle flickering throughout the dark ages. And I pick up this Bible and think of a clustered monk in what would we would consider no more than a dungeon by candlelight, spending a whole lifetime handwriting the manuscripts that preceded this book. And I say, I owe somebody something. I pick up the Bible and I read about Paul and his shipwrecks and his beatings and the price he paid and the determination he has had. And I say, somebody paid a price to pave the way. Somebody paid a price to turn the lights on. Somebody paid the price. You're not here by accident. Somebody shed tears over you. Somebody interceded for you. Some of you don't even know that you had a grandmother or a great-grandmother that was not willing for her offspring to go to hell. And you didn't get saved because you're smart or spiritual. You got saved because there's Tears on deposit in heaven. And those tears ever speak to God. And God looked down and saw your wandering soul. And he remembered the cries and the anguish of somebody who wasn't willing for you to be lost. And moved heaven and earth to find you and redeem you. And here we are in the presence of God. Debtors. Who have an obligation. Who have a duty. Who have a debt. Now that raises the dilemma. How am I going to pay this debt? You know, men historically have tried to build memorials and statues and, and, and memorialize past events. You go to Washington, D.C., you're drowned in history. Worse than that, you go to London and you're drowned in history. But we don't build memorial churches. Because instinctively we know that building a memorial is not enough. Nobody's ever proposed we build a Sherman McGraw statue. Nobody's ever thought of that. Because we know that wouldn't do it. Paul faced this same dilemma when he thought of Calvary. When he thought of of Golgotha's hill where Jesus climbed that that hill outside Jerusalem bearing a cross Paul thought of this when he remembered that it wasn't the law that redeemed him but it was the Lamb of God struggling up Calvary's hill with an old wooden cross stretched itself on that cross and was nailed there and raised between heaven and earth and shed his own blood. And Paul knew 
in the light of Calvary that he was a debtor. And I want to take you tonight, this morning, and I want to move you from Spokane, Washington, back to Calvary. And I want you to sit at the feet of a bleeding Lamb of God. And I want you to see wounded hands and wounded side. And I want you to see a head that's bleeding from the thorns. And I want you, for just a moment, to hear Him say, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And then I want you to hear Him cry, It is finished. A cry of triumph. And I want you to remember that salvation, the salvation you enjoy, is free, but it is not cheap. And the only way you can pay for it is not with silver and gold. God doesn't want you to pay for your salvation. But He does want you to have a sense of gratitude that will move you out. Paul said, I'm faced with this dilemma. How can I pay this debt? And he said, I'll tell you how I'll pay it. There's power in the gospel. And so I'm going to preach the gospel to other generations that have never been reached. I'm going to preach it in Rome because the gospel preached in Rome has the same power to redeem men that redeem me. So I'm going to move out and move forward. And so today I stand here a debtor. I stand here moved deeply by the acts of God, the supernatural acts of God that intercepted our family and intercepted me and everybody that had a part paid some kind of price. And here I am, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed on my way to heaven. My name in God's book, the grace of God upon my life, the favor of God upon my life. And the only way I can show my gratitude is to preach the same gospel to somebody else. And believe that it has the power to transform them. Just as it's transformed me. And so missions is not an option. Evangelism is not an, a luxury option. It is an absolute must. It is vulgar for people to be redeemed and eat the bread of life. And enjoy the abundance of God's grace. And enjoy the the spiritual tide that flows in this church, it is nothing short of vulgar for you to enjoy that and not want to somehow or other pass this bread on to other hungry people. And there's something desperately wrong with a church that turns in on itself. And all you want to do is build buildings for you to enjoy and put thicker carpet for you to walk on. And all you want to do is think about your peace and your comfort and your convenience. That's dead wrong. It is vulgar. It is a blasphemy. And I'm not willing to allow you or any other congregation to settle down and soak in your own luxury when somebody paid a price for you to be redeemed. Somebody suffered. Jesus bled and died for you to be born again. Somebody agonized over you, prayed for you, and travailed that you might have a spiritual birth. I don't have to have much imagination or much faith to believe that if the Lord tarries for another generation or so, that on the backside of China, in the Lipo tribe, there will be a fellowship meeting. And a little boy will tug at his mother's dress and say, Mama, whose picture is that? 
And she'll say, that's Lipo John, who walked over a thousand miles to find somebody that would write the Bible in my, in our language. Who's the lady in the picture with him? That's Lisa, who was arrested and interrogated and abused. Who's the other man? He's Robert Morris. He was dying with leukemia, but he'd prop himself up in the bed to try to write one more verse. As long as his strength would last. Doesn't take much imagination to imagine that little boy who pulls at his Chinese mother's dress tail and has it explained to him that somebody paid a price for them to be redeemed. It doesn't take much imagination to imagine that years later he'll be standing before a great congregation of Chinese people saying, I'm a debtor. Somebody paid a price. Somebody walked a long ways. Somebody shed a lot of tears to set the stage. Maybe to be Lisa's little grandson. And maybe his testimony will be that my granddaddy was a Buddhist. My grandmother was a Buddhist. My granddaddy was a communist. And then the gospel came. And my mother and my grandmother, whose name is Lisa, was the first member of our family to be redeemed. And now there are hundreds of us who are redeemed and filled with the Holy Spirit and doing God's work all across Asia. Praise God. And the cycle goes on. Man, am I ever grateful I'm saved this morning. I have a debt, but that debt's not too heavy to bear. It's with gratitude, not guilt, that I serve the Lord. Would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray for a few minutes. I want you to think about the person that led you to the Lord. I want you to think about the people that loved you and prayed over you. Whether they're relatives or friends or strangers. I want you to think about how God set the stage by using people who were willing to pay the price for you to be redeemed. I hope some of you will just ask God to give you a tender heart and you won't hold the tears back. Because this is a very sacred time. Our spiritual heritage is very important. You didn't just hatch by the road somewhere. You didn't just wake up one morning on your way to heaven. There's been a divine drama underway for a long time. One of my black friends, a pastor, said to me, I hate everything pertaining to slavery. He said, I'm sorry that my great-grandparents were slaves and had to come in a filthy slave ship to America and be auctioned like cattle. He said, I'm so sorry they had to go through that. But he said, the other side of that is... 
that if they hadn't suffered that indignity, I might not know God. But in some strange way, God used their suffering to make it possible for me to be a child of God. Would you ask God to give you a grateful heart? Would you ask God to just give you a new dimension of gratitude for your personal salvation? And then would you ask God to help you to pay that debt some way, somehow or other that you'll not be so selfish that you'll consume this great grace on yourself, but that you'll go out somehow, you'll find a way, maybe by sponsoring a child, maybe by going to the mission field, maybe by partnering with Lisa. But you'll find a way, even in a small way, to share this gospel with somebody who has had a chance. If you have a grandmother that prayed for you, I want you to call her name and thank God for her. If you had a grandfather that led the way, if you had a father or mother, I want you to call their name and thank God for them. I want you to thank God for this church, for this pastor, for this team of pastors. For all that's been done by the grace of God in Spokane to give you an environment where you can grow and mature. As a child of God. For we are blessed. We are rich. We have a wonderful heritage. I touched on it last night. I touched on it earlier in the service this morning. But I want to touch it on it again. How many of you are first generation Christians? You're the first members of your family to be redeemed. Would you raise your hand? That's what I thought. Would you stand to your feet? You that raised your hand, stand to your feet. You are a wonderful sight. Do you know that your family history was broken when God invaded your life? And God gave you a blank page and said, let's start over. You're not a victim of the curses and the sins and the iniquity. God has broken that evil. And you've started a new generation of the redeemed. Look, even pastors of the first generation. You've started something wonderful and new. Only God knows what's in store. The seed you carry in your loins, the unborn generations, are going to be blessed because you are faithful to God. Man, we didn't just rush out to buy a popsicle. We came to grips with an eternal God. Praise God. Praise God. I know you young fellas can't imagine being a grandpa someday, but it'll happen before you know it. And you'll be able to touch that little fellow in Jesus' name. Give him faith. Give him hope. Give him an anchor. Give him a new way of living. Praise God. Your offspring won't have to be 
like you were. They can be different. Praise God. Praise God. I think we just ought to have a special prayer that God will bless these new members of the family of God. And God will help them to somehow by the Spirit understand what a significant thing has happened in their life. That they are redeemed. Praise God. Praise God. How many of you are second generation? You, you, okay, you stand too. How many of you can look back and say, I'm third or fourth generation? Okay, get on your feet. Everybody in this building ought to be standing on your tiptoes with your hands raised toward heaven, celebrating the grace of God. Praise God. It's a wonderful thing to be redeemed. Praise God. Thousands of people are going to follow you into heaven. It's not a matter of you just making it. Thousands of people are going to follow you into heaven. Nations are going to be changed because you're redeemed. The course of history is going to be changed because you're redeemed. Praise God. I want to pray a special prayer over the first generation. Just keep your hands up. Let's pray. You join me in prayer. Then I want Pastor Steve to come and close the service. God, I just thank you that maybe a hundred or more people stood this morning saying the cycle of evil has been broken in my family. That God has invaded the history of our generations and has plucked me out and chosen me and called me unto himself. And I am redeemed and I'm beginning a new lineage. I'm beginning a new generation. I'm beginning a household of faith. I'm beginning a tribe of the redeemed. I'm beginning a whole new history for an oncoming generation because I met God by His grace and by His mercy. Oh, you ought to be celebrating because you're beginning a new eternity. Praise God. 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 Yes, I'm a debtor. Yes, I have an obligation. I have a duty. I have a debt. But that debt is not crushing me. What that debt is doing is putting fire in my bones. Hallelujah. That debt is like fire in my soul that says, because somebody paid the price, I too will pay whatever price is necessary to open up the gates and bid thousands to follow me into heaven with God. Let's give the Lord another big hand and celebrate His goodness. Pastor, praise God. Hallelujah! I hope you understand this morning how this family of God is linked together. Because somehow, that man that walked those... 45 to 60 miles with the bleeding feet because Seville has stood here in this pulpit that man's touched my life too Amen. 
affected my life too. And your lives too. That man has touched our lives today. Because Seville is a part of us. And he was a part of him. And the cycle goes on. And the cycle goes on. I have an obligation to discharge. I have a debt that I owe. There's such a strong anointing. I'm praying that God burns that verse into our spirit this morning. I am a debtor. Say it with me. I am a debtor. Say it again. I am a debtor. Say it again. I am a debtor. Praise His name. Let's sing it again. And let's lift up a voice of rejoicing this morning. A voice of amazement that God would save us at such a cost. Thank you for the cross. I want to just add this footnote. Last night I talked about defending what you'd offered to God from the vultures that circle to steal what you've put on the altar before God. I just want to add this plea. If you're tempted to get involved in an adulterous situation, an immoral situation, for your children's sake, for unborn generations' sake, don't. Some of you young couples, some of you that are not married yet, when you get married, divorce is an easy option according to the world. But your children need a heritage of a praying mother and father. They need that a lot more than you need to be comfortable or even you need to be happy at the moment. Don't rob your children. Some of you young couples need to get a hold of God and let God heal your relationship and heal your home. If for no other reason this little guy is walking in your footstep that you're going to either take him to heaven or damn him to hell. I'm telling you, folk, not only the next generation, but the third and the fourth and the fifth and the eighth and the tenth generation from you is affected by whether you defend that sacrifice or not. Whether you treasure what God has done for you or not. It's a wonderful and serious thing to be a child of God. It's worth whatever price you pay, whatever battle you fight, whatever you may have to give up, it'll be worth it to give oncoming generations a heritage of faith. Praise God. Praise God. I just want to say again to you that have just your first generation Christians, you began a new history, a new heritage, a new tribe, a new future. Praise God. And that ought to excite you and put some meaning into your walk with God. Hallelujah. This has been a great day of victory. I believe the kingdom of God has been established in many of our lives this morning. Praise God. We're going to have a great service here tonight. I hope you come and join us for it. Let's give the Lord another hand. Thank you for the offerings. Thank you for your love.
um, God bless you this morning. Don't miss tonight. You don't want to miss tonight's service. We love you. You're dismissed. Tour, please come and get the litter tour and uh, buy the t-shirts. The proceeds from the t-shirts go to help love you with the children. And if you want to buy Phil's book, go put your name on the list and pay for the book and we'll ship it to you. Praise God. Have a good day.